Hey, I'm Corrine Levy, and this is the seventh episode of Script Chat, the podcast that connects you to your favorite authors through insightful conversations about their latest and greatest works. For this episode, we were joined by Bloomberg technology reporter Emily Chang to discuss her explosive new book, Brotopia, Breaking Up the Boys Club of Silicon Valley, which confronts Silicon Valley's rampant sexism. From front page scandals to behind the scenes stories that key players reveal directly, Emily reports on the forces conspiring against women in the workplace and outside of it as well. From sex parties filled with VCs and entrepreneurs and online pornography to outright harassment. You can read Brotopia Unscribed for free with your subscription. And if you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting Scribd.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. And with that, here's Emily Chang in discussion with TaskRabbit founder Leah Busk at Scribd's office in San Francisco. Enjoy. I'm so excited to be interviewing my friend here, Emily about her new book, Brotopia, it came out this month. So I'm sure all of you know a lot about Emily and her amazing career, but I'm gonna read a few points that actually I was surprised about as well, very impressed. So Emily is a Bloomberg TV anchor and she's the host of Bloomberg Technology in Studio 1.0. Her career in journalism actually spans decades and continents. She was previously a CNN correspondent. really old. No, it, well, let's, let's be real. A decade and a half-ish. <laughs> Three children later. Yes. She was based in Beijing and London. You've won five regional Emmy Awards for her reporting. She's a graduate of Harvard, lives in San Francisco with her husband and her three boys, the littlest of which is the same age as mine. Um, in her book, Emily explores how Silicon Valley culture, one that promises opportunity for all, has come to be plagued with sexism, inequality in the workplace. She doesn't just explore the origins, though. She details what this culture means and what can be done to fix it. So this evening, we have the pleasure of hearing about Emily's journey as she sought out to tell these incredibly difficult stories, and we're going to dig into that some more. Um, And she was able to get some amazing people um, to be interviewed, including Sheryl Sandberg, Marissa Mayer, and Tim Cook is incredible. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me and for reading and for coming. Really appreciate it. So let's start at the beginning. So uh, since we're friends, I knew that you've been working on this book for quite some time, a couple of years. Can you kind of take us back to the beginning and tell us the origin story of how this all came about? I know, and you were like one of the first people I yeah. interviewed. I talked to, you know, and over the course of writing the book, I probably spoke to more than 300 people. And, you know, their stories helped sort of shape the direction that I was going to go. You know, I've been covering tech now for eight years, and I've gotten to interview some of the most incredible people. And there would always be this sort of issue of sexism hanging in the background, and people would get off camera and they would complain about it, and especially women. Um, you know, we're just really frustrated. But when I tried to ask them about it on camera, no one would say what they really had to say. And then in November 2015, I was interviewing an investor named Mike Moritz. He's the chair of Sequoia Capital. And at the time, Sequoia had no female investing partners in the United States. And I said to him, what is your responsibility to hire women? And I expected some sort of canned answer, because every time you ask that question, you get some some sort of (laughs) canned answer. And he didn't give me a canned answer at all. He said that, you know, he he blamed the pipeline. He talked about how he feels, you know, not enough women are studying computer science, and then said that he believes that Sequoia is completely blind to gender, race, religion, but that they were not prepared to lower their standards. 
And as soon as he said that, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. And, you know, everywhere I went for like the next three months, people wanted to talk about that. Mm. Like, couldn't believe it, horrified. Some people didn't see anything wrong with it or understand maybe what he was trying to say. Mm-hmm. And I just realized that this is, it's such a visceral, it's, it's a topic that inspires such a visceral and emotional debate, depending on who you talk to. And everyone thinks they know sort of what the problem is. Like maybe women just don't want these jobs. Maybe it is a pipeline problem. Um, maybe they're leaving to take care of their kids like they do in all industries. This is you know, the belief. And the more I, I went back into the like, early days, I realized all of those theories are wrong. Um, and in fact, it is you know, a much more nuanced, you know, how we got here is much more nuanced and complicated than anyone believes. And in fact, it wasn't always this way which leads me to say that it doesn't need to be this way, Mm -hmm. and it's certainly not too late to change. So tell me a little bit more about that. You write in the book about this story, this image that was used all the way back in the 1970s. Can you tell us more about that and how far back this actually goes? So in uh, 1973, in a computer lab at the University of Southern California, a group of engineers was working on the predecessor to the JPEG. And so they were working on early scanners and looking for pictures to basically turn photographs into data. And uh, the head of that lab um, noticed a Playboy just hanging around in the office because no one thought it was odd to just like bring a Playboy into the office Um, and said, hey, there are some pretty nice photos in there. Why don't we take one of them? And they chose the one that was in the centerfold. And so this cropped photo of a woman looking suggestively over her bare shoulder Um, went on to become the most commonly used photo in image algorithm processing. And it is still very common to this day. So we're talking about engineers working on the iPhone at Apple or or Google Images. Is anyone here familiar with with this photo? photo? I'm just curious. A couple, yeah, when I read in the book, I was kind of, I'm an engineer. It's kind of like, I don't know if I know about this photo. Kev, Kev, my husband, you've seen the photo. All right, my husband's seen it. So yeah, I mean, this is like a real thing. Okay, yeah. right. And so it's, you know, for, for, for God, you know, there were many guys I talked to about this photo. They said, oh, my God, I had no idea she was naked. And for women who, <laughs> for, for women, you know, I talked to several women who in their computer science classes, they realized, you know, the origin of the photo and it was completely alienating. And there's a woman who sort of took on this photo as sort of her cause celeb to rid the industry of this photo. And she started using photos of Fabio, the model, instead (laughs) in her presentations. But this is still a photo used in image algorithm processing presentations. And, and, you know, for women, it's been completely alienating. And I, I, I tracked down the guy who was running that lab. And, you know, he, he had never actually spoken publicly about it before. And he said, he said, he said, you're the first person to actually ask me how that happened. Yeah, right. And it wasn't sexist. It was just a good photo. And besides, there were no women working in the classroom at the time. Right. And it just, it, it was sort of started off this sort of half century of buck passing that I think has happened in this industry, which is not my problem. I didn't start this problem. Mm-hmm. And yet all of these things have stacked up on top of each other to, to lead to the absolutely depressing and unfortunate numbers that we have in the industry today, which is women have 25% of computing jobs. They make up 7% of investors. You're one of them. Mm-hmm. Women-led companies get 2%. 2% of venture capital funding. In no world 
that is like changing the world, should that be okay? Mm -hmm. And yet it has gone on for so long and it has led to all of these unfortunate stereotypes mm -hmm. and it simply shouldn't be happening in an, in an industry that is changing the way we live every day. And it's, it's so deep-rooted, mm -hmm. right, and for so many decades. So as a, a founder and investor in Silicon Valley, I know how tight-knit the female community is. We all talk. How hard was it to break into that inner circle mm -hmm. and gain the trust to be able to convince these women to tell these really difficult stories? What was that process like? It was hard. And I actually... I'd be curious to hear from you. I think that that the unity in the in the female investor and founding community has actually like the bonds have gotten stronger Absolutely. over the last couple yeah. of years, and I think people have really mobilized and mm -hmm. realized sort of the power of standing together and supporting each other. There's safety um, in numbers. You know, like when I started talking to you early in the process, like, what can you tell me? What's been your experience? What do you know? Who should I talk to? Who has a story? Who's going to be willing to open up? And in the beginning, it was really hard. Mm -hmm. And most people, you know, people had stories they didn't want to tell them or they told me stories off the record. And over the course of my reporting, the momentum really changed. So first of all, Trump was elected, um, which nobody, even Donald Trump, didn't think would happen. And, and Susan Fowler came forward. Mm -hmm. And I think actually it goes, it dates even farther back to Ellen Powell, who, you know, in 2012, she filed her lawsuit and she lost three years later. But I think she, over the last couple of years, has sort of won in the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. And it would be an interest. I, I think it's really interesting to think about if she filed her case today, what would, would, she, would she have lost? Yeah. But either way, and I've asked her this question, she said, well, we wouldn't be here at all, maybe. And so I think she feels somewhat, has felt somewhat of a reward in that she's been able to sort of open these doors for other women to share their stories. Um, you know, so Susan Fowler writes her blog post. It goes viral. I had 12 women over at my house for dinner in tech in the aftermath of that. And you know, some of them were engineers at Uber, engineers at Google, various startups, and none of them were surprised. And they were, in fact, frustrated, tired, exhausted, fed up. And they described sort of this feeling of this constant emotional labor they had to do every day, all day long, to just simply prove that they deserve to be there. Mm -hmm. And the way they described it was an it's like an entire second job that men just don't have to do. And yet, they like love their jobs. They love their opportunity to change the world. They want to be here. You know, at the end, I said, you know, how many of you have thought of leaving the industry? And they all raised their hands. They've all cried. Um, you know, but they are all like so excited to, to do what they do and have this right. opportunity. And so they, they want to stay. And then it, after that is when we saw you know, women coming forward about Justin Colbeck and then Dave McClure and some incredible reporting by The Information and, and The New York Times and incredible work by entrepreneurs like Nini and Wang who actually worked really hard to get women to come together to share their stories. And it wasn't easy. I mean, I think she put in hours and hours and hours right. of work. What was it like going from what feels like to me from zero to full speed ahead in the course of the two to three years that you've been writing this book, right? I mean, you're seeing uh, these things happen. You're seeing an investor every week mm -hmm. being called out for bad behavior. But you've just spent the last right, right. two years writing. I mean, what do you think the, the tipping point was? And, and how did you feel as you were finishing the book? Were you 
Were you done with the book mm -hmm. at that point, or where were you in the process? Um, I was probably like 75% of the way okay. through, and of course, my publisher was like, you need to finish this book tomorrow. <laughs> right, right now. this is happening now, and I'm like, yeah. but it's happening now. How can I finish it tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah right. And so That's a good we, point. I mean, in publishing, we crashed the book, and so we accelerated yeah. okay. the whole like sort of last few months. Wow. The book was actually supposed to come out in May of this year. Um, wow. And... In a way, I know sort of from the outside, it seemed like everything was happening and the walls were coming down. Yeah. And, and to be fair, my inbox was just flooded with women who did want to share their stories. Mm. But at the same time, there were so many people who still did not want to share their stories. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, in July, I started reporting on Shervin Pishavar, mm -hmm. for example, and that took six months to get women to agree wow. to share their stories. And I, you know, I had all of the women, but they were all so scared. What did so, it take? What did it take oh my to gosh, it was make it happen? Many calls, meetings, lunches, texts, connecting them with each other. You know, even mm. I knew that I, you know, I sort of told myself, even if they weren't ready to share them with, share their stories with the world, they could okay. at least share them with each other and find some sort of yeah. solace from that. Then ultimately we, we caught a bit of a break um, with one of the stories and it just sort of snowballed and we were able to get it to a place where we were able to publish it. And by the way, there's a lot happening behind the scenes at news organizations when we're even contemplating whether to do this. I mean, mm -hmm. it's an incredibly, you're talking about someone's career and it's, it's not a decision that we take lightly. Mm -hmm. And so that came out in, I can't remember, it was like November. And my book was, I was turning in my book like two days later. And oh I begged my editor, I was like, I need to get this story in the book. Yeah, right. Um, and so that's probably the last, the Most last, recent. yeah, that, that I was I able was to get I was surprised as I was reading it, how timely and relevant, mm -hmm. I mean, some of the stories in this book are. I was like, yeah. oh my God, that just I happened I definitely like, pushed the limits week. of yeah. the public publishing industry. My yeah. editor will tell you, like, <laughs> you were supposed to send this in yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, but I just begged oh because gosh. it was, it was like a breaking news story. And I'm a journalist and I, you know, I, I do TV. And so like, it's like instant, right? right. And right. I was like, I, I need it to come out tomorrow. I kept on, like, I was, my biggest fear was that something horrible uh, right. would happen and I wouldn't have it in there. But, you know, ultimately, we we all worked very hard to get opportunity it out. for a sequel. Yeah, <laughs> God, I hope we can talk about yeah. the PTSD. I, I know, get I'm sure. It. I'm yeah. sure. It's yeah. Let's get through this one first. So you talked a little bit about the small group of women that you had over for these dinners. How did you get connected with them, and what was it like bringing that group together? Was it the same women every time, different groups? So, you know, different groups. I mean, there, there was one particular dinner where actually yeah. Tracy Cho, who yeah is the one who wrote that original Medium post calling on the industry to release their numbers. This was like three or four years ago when we didn't even have any numbers. And she had heard Cheryl Sandberg speak at a conference at the, I believe it was the Grace Hopper conference. And right. Cheryl was talking about how the numbers were plummeting and Tracy was like, well, how do you know? Like, what are the numbers? And right. so it was actually because of that that now we know what the numbers are at Facebook and Google. Um, and Apple are. And so she helped me gather women and okay. a couple of other women that I've been talking to helped me gather women. I really wanted engineers mm -hmm. because I felt like I had interviewed like Cheryl and Marissa and mm -hmm. plenty of investors, but I really wanted to talk to the people who were in the trenches mm -hmm. um, because I felt like that's what Susan Thaler had exposed is what sort of women are dealing, everyday women are dealing with all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that definitely was one of the, I, it was a just pressing conversation. It was also a highlight for me because it was, I could tell it was sort of an opportunity for them also to come together and share their stories. And I remember throwing out to the group like, okay, so has anyone had a Susan Fowler type of experience? And they were silent. 
and you know sort of one by one they shared their stories and they were you know they they had some pretty shocking stories that mm -hmm. like they just never told or and at the time they felt they couldn't tell anyone there was no hr mm -hmm. or you know the ceo was you know joking about getting their metrics printed on condoms like you know these women i didn't handpick them i mean they just it was sort of a random right. assortment of people and right. every one of them had a story what was uh, what was the aha moment in that small group was it getting them to kind of go around one by one what made them comfortable in actually opening um, up there was an amazing woman there. Her name is Lydia Fernandez. Mm. Lydia Fernandez, and she's um, an engineer at Uber, mm -hmm. and she's transgender. Yeah. And she is like a fireball. And she shared her experience. And, you know, for the first three years in this industry, she was presenting as a man. And then after she made her transition, she's, she said, people just started fucking cutting me off. And... I would sit there and be like, excuse me, let me finish speaking. And people would double take because they're not used to a woman saying, hello, like, don't interrupt. Right. And she has this amazing quote where she said, I have sat on both sides of this table. It's incredible. I have 20 years of life experience of people telling me that my opinion matters. Mm -hmm. And this game is rigged. Mm -hmm. You know, like, people can treat me completely differently mm. now. And she won't let them. But, you know. It was fascinating when I was reading that part in the book because I think so many times as women, particularly, let's go back a couple years, mm -hmm. right, before all of this, mm -hmm. you second guess yourself. Mm -hmm. Things happen and something just happened the other day actually when Chris and I were out at a pitch meeting and I was like, you know what, that probably isn't really how it went down. Mm -hmm. That wasn't really the case. And you second guess, you second guess. And then I read that part in the book and I was like, this is someone who is in a unique position to have lived both sides mm -hmm. of the table and is telling us that this is rigged. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was such a powerful moment in the book to just show that ladies, we're not we're not insane. Mm -hmm. We're not making this shit up, right? Mm -hmm. Like this actually does happen all the time, right? Right? One of the I mean, I've got I the tour has been so rewarding because I've gotten to I mean, I've been living with these stories myself for 2 years yeah. and finally getting the book into the hands of real people and it's like so nervous like did I do did I did I like portray it correctly mm -hmm. and um, you know I've had women come up to me and say thank you so much I don't feel like I have to apologize anymore for just being a woman mm -hmm. or for taking the spot or for thinking that someone was just like taking a chance on me when really I just I deserve to be there and right. so it's like women need to stop apologizing mm -hmm. you know and I think part of it is just having that sort of collective confidence and supporting each other because it is so important, you know, and just just having that confidence and, and that belief in ourselves mm -hmm. is, I mean, as a woman, I feel those things too. Yeah. But I think in, in tech for women, it's especially hard because they are so outnumbered all the time. Right. I think the positive side of this too is men getting to hear these stories and then being able to be that support system, right, for women, supporting them when things happen. And by the Have way, there are that? positive yeah. stories yeah. in the book. Okay. Um, <laughs> and we can talk about yes. this too. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, there are some incredible stories. Women, you know, I follow the story of Katrina Lake and mm -hmm. the CEO of Stitch Fix and how, you know, 50 people said no to her and then finally one said yes and she, she basically forced her to kind of bootstrap her company and, mm -hmm. you know, build a much, you know, they were profitable much earlier on than mm -hmm. I think some companies typically are in tech in their life cycle because they didn't have as many opportunities to fail. They didn't have as much money in the coffers. And she just took her company public at like a $2 billion market cap. Amazing. And, you know, you'll see at companies like Stitch Fix and Rent the Runway and Eventbrite where Julia 
Hartz is, is, mm -hmm. is CEO and she co-founded the company with her husband that it is generally more gender balanced. So I do think that just mm -hmm. simply having more women in leadership creates the environment for more women and it attracts, it attracts diversity. But there are some men in the book who, you know, are doing some incredible things and who also have been willing to admit the mistakes that they made. So I interviewed Max Levchin, the co-founder of PayPal, mm -hmm. who, you know, he's a total engineer and he's, you know, doesn't like to brag, doesn't like to talk about himself. But he really like sort of opened up and he said he admitted that in the early days of PayPal, he basically just hired all his friends, which happened to be, you know, male engineers from the University of Illinois, where he went to college. Um, in fact, I think that's what a lot of people in the PayPal mafia did. And by the way, like the PayPal mafia is one of the most powerful networks of people in the world, and they all happen to be men. And at his next company, Slide, he didn't explicitly create sort of or, or forge sort of cultural values. And it became like a sort of a heavy drinking culture. It was a gaming company. They, you know, had happy hour every afternoon and it, it became very bro-y. And at a certain point, he's like, I had to push the bros out. I had to do a cultural reset. And he's like, I did so many things that I'm just not proud of. And now at his third company affirm, he's like, I am doing things completely differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he is very much focused. I mean, like, so that like the first thing they did was write down their values. He banned happy hour, which I think he's eased up on that a little bit. <laughs> um, but he's been very focused on hiring and promoting right. women and reaching out to you know, various coding groups, but just mm -hmm. making it expl an explicit focus, but also sort of being willing to admit right. like when he, when he made mistakes. And I yeah. think that is so important. Mm -hmm. and I think it's also really important to see people like talk, being willing to talk about their mistakes because we all make mistakes. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting point because there's another story you tell about your conversation with Ed Williams. Mm -hmm. And you ask him, and, and please tell us the full story, if Twitter, particularly harassment, would be different on Twitter if there had been more women involved in the early days of building that product. So can you tell us more about that conversation? So this was one of my theories, like, you know, women were in involved in computing in the mm -hmm. early days. They were programming computers for the military and NASA, and then they basically got sort of pushed and profiled out for various reasons, which, which, which we can discuss. And I just sort of had this idea, you know, what if women were present at the founding of some of these companies? Would they be different? And I asked Ev, you know, do you think if you had women on the founding team or the very early team at Twitter that maybe online harassment and trolling wouldn't be such a problem? Because by the way, women are the targets of the most extreme and vicious forms of online harassment. And he said, actually, I, I don't think it would be such a problem. We just weren't thinking about it mm -hmm. in the way that we built and designed the product. It was very important to them that anybody be able to talk to anybody. We were thinking about wonderful and amazing things that could be done with Twitter, not how it could be used to send death threats or rape threats. Right. And I thought that was, it was really important to hear him yeah. say that. And, you know, conversely, you know, I also have a story about how when Sheryl Sandberg arise, arrived at Facebook, this was in 2008, 66 million users. At the time, Mark Zuckerberg was very obsessed with Twitter and the traction that Twitter was getting and they were owning real-time news and why was that? Maybe people were willing to be more open than he thought. And so he wanted to encourage Facebook users to be more open. And there was this location tagging proposal right. on the table where if, you, if, if I tag Leah in a photo, I'd be like, Leah and I are in Las Vegas. She couldn't say, uh, no, I'm in San Francisco working. He wanted to make it so that you couldn't untag yourself right. in photos. And it became this really big war inside Facebook, like knock down, drag out fights. And Cheryl was one of the people that was like, you cannot do this. And yeah. particularly one of the, you know, nightmare cases was, you know, a woman being, you know, tagged in something where, you know, where she wasn't or didn't want to be. Or, and she really sort of took on 
content issues around women, like vi anything that depicted violence towards women and rape jokes. Mm -hmm. And she started asking the questions like, why would we leave that up on the platform? Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, the location untagging proposal was abandoned. Um, and I do think her role in the early days was very important in terms of you know, setting some of these cultural and platform values that may not have been set. And they really complemented each other in how they approach things. Like Mark thought about it much more from a platform perspective, and she really came at it from an individual perspective. And what's interesting about that is that the, he made as much space for her as she made for him in their mm -hmm. relationship. And I think that that's why it worked. You know, it's not just certainly a matter of hiring women, but right. also you know creating situations where you know, you're open to input and where they can succeed. Yeah, I think it's a great example of a founding story that took a different turn, mm -hmm. maybe, because of right. that diversity. And by the way, Facebook yeah. isn't perfect, as we've all yeah, learned, right. in, especially the last few weeks. Right. But, you know, I do think that, I, I, I just love that story. Yeah. Because, you know, these were questions that people at Facebook weren't asking until right. she got there. Right. So you interviewed Cheryl, you interviewed Marissa Mayer, you interviewed Tim Cook and Peter Thiel. What was it like mm -hmm. going to these very high-profile people saying I'm writing this book and getting them to talk to you. I mean, what was that process like? I mean, it's hard to get anyone to talk about this because it is, it's like people are just constantly worried about putting their foot in their mouths. And I understand, I'm a journalist. It's really easy to, um, and especially in our Twitter happy world, it's just so easy to pile on. And, you know, that's why I think the comment from Mike Moritz is, is important, not just because of what he said, but because, you know, if you just judge Sequoia on its actions, they didn't hire a woman for 44 years. Like, you know, you know, you can't tell me that the best venture capital firm in the world couldn't find a single woman to hire in four decades. And so, you know, obviously Cheryl has sort of made this her thing. And, mm -hmm. and you know, she, and by the way, you know, Cheryl and Marissa both agreed to speak to me, you know, wholeheartedly. But Marissa is, is, is actually much more hesitant to talk about these issues publicly. And I, like, totally understand that. She doesn't want to be known as a woman CEO. She just wants to be right. a CEO. But she really sort of, and I think a lot of people think that she doesn't care about mm -hmm. women, but she does. Mm -hmm. She just doesn't choose to talk about it or advertise it in the, in the same way that maybe right. some other people do. And she had a fascinating story about how she, you know, when she was studying math and science as, as she was growing up, she was always, you know, very good at it and... and, mm -hmm. and you know, people, her teachers and parents would support her, but no one ever said, oh, and that's unusual or that's odd for a girl. But when she got to college and she was studying computer science, she opened the Stanford Daily one day and there was a story about the, like, freaky blonde woman in the computer science right. classes. And she was like, wait, I'm in those classes. I should know that woman. And she realized that they were talking about her. Right. And she tells the story because she, she said that that was the very first moment that she realized wait, like, I am different. Oh, my God, I'm a freak. Right. I'm weird. And it made her feel like she wanted to drop mm -hmm. out. And so the way she tells the story is that she was very lucky because no one sort of singled her out when she was young. But, you know, if you do single people out like that, you know, things like right. stereotype threat and imposter syndrome can set in. And it almost gives you as a girl or as a woman more of a license to feel like I should right. drop out. I shouldn't right. be here. I don't belong. And I think one of the interesting things about both of them, and I sort of weave their stories together in the book, is that they have been criticized for things that men just never would have been criticized for. So like the length of her maternity leave, like if that was a man who was about to have a child, like we wouldn't even know, you know, ending the work from home policy. I just don't think people would have batted an eye if it was a male CEO who had ended the work from home policy. And there was, I went back and I was digging through some of the press and there was one article that was like, Sheryl Sandberg and Marissa Meyer 
are they setting back the cause of working moms? And I was like, what? This is so unfair. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not that they don't deserve criticism and like we should like we should hold all of our leaders to account but let's be equal in the way that we judge them right and the reason that they're getting criticized is because they are so unique because there are no women like them right and that's why we need the you know women in leadership will create the environment for more women in leadership that's something Cheryl says over and over again mm -hmm. you know but I also think we need to realize the, the stories that we're telling about these people because it very much shapes how we perceive them what about someone like Tim Cook, who seems so secretive? Apple's yeah. so secretive, right? I mean... So Tim, I mean, he's very passionate about these issues and very passionate about diversity. I mean, he comes from Alabama. He's a very interesting background. And I actually interviewed him at a fundraiser at a private girls' school. Okay. And I, first of all, I was, like, amazed he showed up. Like, you know, this is on a Saturday night. Wow. You know, he went to speak at this girls' wow. school. And it's funny because I actually just today... It, interviewed one of the parents she one of the parents at the school and she was like I still remember that interview he was so open and to me he j just felt very unscripted we weren't talking about apple we were talking about education and diversity and trump had just won the election mm. and so you know he's really become much more outspoken on you know social and political issues and steve job steve never did that right. so i think that's sort of how he's you know to me that's how he's defined himself yeah. and i think it's really important to hear to hear, right. you know, from these leaders on these topics, especially when you are literally the most powerful company in the world. Right. So you did hundreds mm -hmm. of interviews, everyone from Tim Cook, Sheryl Sandberg, all the way to these women gathering, these engineering women gathering in your home. What's the interview that stands out the most to you? Oh, gosh. So my, so probably of all the interviews, my favorite interview is the last six pages of the book. Okay. where I sat down with six teenaged girls oh, yes. who've all learned how yeah. to code. Mm -hmm. And they were so excited. Oh we, got, we went to Gott's Roadside at the Ferry Building. We got burgers and <laughs> yes. fries. so cute. And they were so enthusiastic. And they just, I mean, they're just, they're so excited to be part of the industry and sort of do their part to change the world. But, like, they read the news. They know what has happened at Uber. They know that Sheryl Sandberg is the only... Cheryl Sandberg, and they're scared. Hmm. One of the women, one of the girls was like, I'm in a women in tech group on Facebook, and they talk about mansplaining. And um, um, so, I mean, it was just a perfect example to me of, you know, we haven't quite talked about this yet, but the tech industry created the pipeline problem, in yeah. my view, right. for various reasons, but they're also reinforcing the pipeline problem. Mm -hmm. There is a pipeline problem, yes, yeah. but the industry has a huge influence over how the people in the pipeline perceive the industry and who wants to go into the pipeline in the first place. Right. And I saw, I mean, that was just so, for some reason I was like, I was like wow, like they, they know about like Amazon's market cap and like they, they were really well, well read. Yeah. And, and yet, and they're yet so um, sort of optimistic. Yeah. And, you know, I want that, that I want that optimism to survive, right. you know, like we don't want those women to be jaded. We want them to be excited and, yeah. And so, you know, if they're still here in 10 years, like, that'll be some sign of success. But yeah. we all have a lot of work to do yeah. to get there. And we'll, co we'll come back to that because uh, I think that'll be interesting to dig into more sort of what's next mm -hmm. for this, this next generation coming up. The book originally was over 500 pages, yeah. <laughs> cut down to 300, just under 300. What was left on the cutting floor? Oh, what do you wish you could yeah. have kept? So much. Tell us. Everything. Um, so the chapter that 
didn't make the cut was a chapter on like amazing women and okay. that'll have to be the sequel yeah I do tell the story of amazing women throughout the book but I really sort of wanted one place with like all of these like a bunch of stories together what's one you want to shine on right now oh my god so many <laughs> um uh, like I can't even I mean there's so so many like I did an amazing interview with Lynn Jurich who's the CEO of Sunrun yeah. and she sat down and she literally she <laughs> she sat down and she was like I know if I was a man my stock price would be higher and I like wow. never got to use that quote. I'm oh so God, glad I so just good. got to tell yes. you guys about it. It was so Someone amazing. tweet that. You know, this Retweet is a woman. It. I mean, like she's basically she's taking on Elon Musk, right? Yeah. Like, wow. And um, she took her company public three weeks after having her first child. Oh my God. And she brought her baby on the roadshow. And as she's walking into one of the roadshow meetings, one of the investors says, who are you? And she's like, I'm the CE fucking oh. <laughs> Right. Like, hold this baby. I'm the CEO. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there, there's so many stories like that. I yeah. mean, um, this woman, Janica Alvarez, who's the CEO of a smart breast pump company named Naya Health. Yeah. She has three boys, and I have three boys, so we instantly yeah. connected. And she's, got, I mean, she, they've just had so many fundraising struggles, and she actually founded the company with her husband, and like, they, they like see just stark differences in how they're treated by investors, you know, like, you know, that people are addressing him in the room. And she's like, hi, I'm the CEO. <laughs> and I mean, just, she's had plenty of sort of egregious stories, like yeah. most women entrepreneurs. And they were having trouble raising money and they decided to give up their house and move into a minivan for a month. And they went on a road trip with their sons and they worked out of the car to save money, to buy themselves some extra runway. And this isn't, I think, you know, there's some amazing research in the book about just how investors perceive men and women entrepreneurs differently. You know, so for example, if women and men, if a man and a woman voice the exact same slideshow presentation, the man is more likely to get money and more money. So men get 52% of what they ask for, women get 25% of what they ask for. Qualities that are seen as positive in men are seen as negative in women. So a man who's young is high potential. A woman who's young is inexperienced. A man who is Cautious, that's a positive. A woman who's cautious, oh, like she doesn't have what it takes. Mm -hmm. And so when investors are, are, are looking at funding entrepreneurs, if it's a male entrepreneur, they're simply like looking at the idea, can this person execute, mm -hmm. done, done. If, if it's a woman, they're like, but can she do it? Like, is she going to have kids or does she have kids? How is she going to do it if she has kids? Right. So, I mean, literally every yeah. woman entrepreneur is like, has been asked like about their kids. Yeah, been there. Um, and so... With Janica, you know, I think I, I do think sometimes investors are prone to believe that women aren't willing to make the sacrifices that investors believe you need to make in order to take something from zero to one. And she wow. was like, if an investor told me that they didn't think I could sacrifice enough, I would punch them in the face. <laughs> um, and so it's just there were so many stories yeah. like that where I, I they just need wish to be I could. Told. Yes. Yes. Um, and so I want to find a way to do that. I have some awesome. ideas, but um, yeah, that was it. one chapter that. Got cut. Got cut. Okay. Yeah. All right. We're going to look forward to it. <laughs> okay. So you rattled off some numbers in the beginning. I want to re reiterate them and then ask a question. So right now, women make up 25% of jobs in Silicon Valley, 7% of the investor community. Female founders are getting 2% of deployed <laughs> venture capital and startups. We've got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. What can we do to fix this? Now, Sheryl Sandberg said recently that the Me Too movement hasn't gone far enough. Do you agree with that? And what do you think is needed most? Cheryl Sandberg was speaking at, uh, I think it was the Morgan Stanley, some banking conference today, and it was all about Facebook. And then at the end, she said she wanted to 
answer a question that wasn't asked. Okay. And it was about Me Too. And so Lean In has collected a lot of data mm -hmm. on the Me Too movement that shows that men are more scared than ever to yeah. mentor women, to travel with women, to do like work activities alone with women. And like she has this whole new call to action mentor her, mm -hmm. where like calling on men to, you know, be even bigger, you know, try sure try even harder to mentor and be advocates and make sure that they're doling out opportunity equally. So if they don't want to have dinner with a woman, don't have dinner with men or only do breakfast. Right. Just make sure that you're treating everyone equally. And she sort of called on everyone in the room, like you are in a position right now to like this could be an inflection point for the worst or for the better. And let's make it for the better. Um, I love that. So the question was, how do we start to, has the, yeah, ha, has me too, mm -hmm. has it done enough? Can we do more? And what, what can we all do to help? Oh my gosh, we can absolutely do more. Yeah. I mean, look, I have so many stories in this book, but I know so many stories that will never be told. Mm. You know, so mm -hmm. many stories that women just, they're just not, they're never going to tell mm -hmm. because it's still so scary and there's still so much backlash. And so my biggest fear is that this is a moment and not a movement. Yeah. My biggest hope is that this really is a movement mm -hmm. and that things really will change for the better. But like part of that is keeping up the pressure and part of that is, you know, highlighting the amazing mm -hmm. stories and shining on the, mm -hmm. the, the people that are doing amazing things. But I just don't, I don't want the momentum to die. And, you know, I think, you know, the, 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 the talking about it in the dialogue is, is so important, but we need to see action. Yeah. And the last chapter is much more focused on sort of strategic solutions. But I do think so much about, like, we're not going to be able to solve the problem unless we understand how and why we got here. Right. And I do think there are so many assumptions and, you know, mistaken ideas of how we got here. And if you don't understand how we got here, there's no way that we can fix it. Right. And so I know that it can be sort of hard to hear some of these things, mm -hmm. but like no good change comes without some people feeling a little uncomfortable. Yeah. And the it's, hope is for the good change. It's right? hard to look in the mirror sometimes, right? Yes. <laughs> and really take in what you're seeing. And, right. and Which is that women back. get 2% of venture capital funding. I mean, for an industry that likes data, just look at the data. Mm -hmm. The pay gap in Silicon Valley is five times the national average. So if you control for job title and geographic location and experience, Silicon Valley, the payback, the payback is already bad, right? But in Silicon Valley, it's five times the national Have average. Have you, I'm curious, when you did research for the book, it's, it's focused on Silicon Valley. That's part of the subtitle. Did you look at other industries mm -hmm. or do you have any perspective on what are some other industries that might be an example that we could take mm -hmm. some ideas from? And like, I don't know. Yeah. So I can't tell you how many people said to me, well, Silicon Valley can't possibly be worse than Wall Street. Mm. Well, if you look at the numbers, actually it is. So at the top banks, it's, a, it's about 50-50. I was, I was surprised to wow. hear that. They have a lot of work to do when it comes to women in leadership. And mm -hmm. so that compares to 25% of, of women across jobs and technology. And it was interesting. I was recently talking to the president of Goldman Sachs about this. And, you know, he, he thinks that the industry is, the tech industry is still just so young and that, you know, the Wall Street got, you know, worked a lot of this out in the 80s and 90s. But almost like the industry is so young, it should have been in the heart of the left-leaning West Coast. It could have been such an opportunity mm -hmm. to, to start from a better place. Right. And so one of the things that I do, like sexism is everywhere. It's obviously we're seeing it in here. We see it in Hollywood. We see it on Wall Street. We see it in Washington. But I do think what makes Silicon Valley different is we're sitting here saying we're changing the world. We're sitting here saying we're making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And so there is an element of, unfortunate, is of hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. like, like, 
as you said, it is time to look in the mirror. Right. And in many ways, Silicon Valley has failed women yeah. and failed underrepresented minorities. And the numbers of you know blacks and Latinos in tech are downright depressing, mm -hmm. like three percent, one percent. Right. That I mean, this is this is supposed to be the most progressive industry in the world. And by the way, like I do believe that the people who are bringing us to Mars and building self-driving cars and you know rides at the push of a button, they can change this too. Yeah, like, we can, this we can figure this hard. out. Yeah, exactly. This yeah. is an industry that has never shied away from hard problems. Right. Connecting the world, organizing the world's information. Like we can hire more women and pay them fairly. Right. And you know, create inclusive work workplaces. Yeah. Because that's not just good for women, that's good for everybody and good for business too. Right. By the it way. is good for business. What was the biggest surprise to you after you launched the book? After it's out, did you have expectations on what that would feel like and what was the biggest surprise? Oh, um, I mean, this is my first book. I've never done this before. Yeah. So, I mean, the, re the reaction has been like 95% supportive. Yep. There are definitely some people on Twitter who, you know, are... Case in point. Case in point. Yeah. I call them bro trolls. Um, <laughs> but like, I knew that, you know, I did... I. I came into this without an agenda. Like I'm a journalist, yeah, and you know, I just I knew that this wasn't going to be worth it if I didn't report what I saw. I knew that it was going to be a controversial topic. I knew that people would have a strong reaction to it, mm -hmm. but you know, there was no point in doing it if I wasn't going to re report the truth. Right. And so, like I do, I, I'm I'm actually I feel like it's been 95% supportive yeah. and positive. And um, were you surprised about the five percent? No. Or are you ready for it? No, like I, I would love to sit here and say like I don't read the one star reviews on Amazon, but like I do, you know, like I, there was one, literally one of the first reviews, it actually got taken down. It said, another industry women suck at. Literally, it was like one line. And I was just like, I can't, like I just can't believe someone even wrote that. Um, but that's the thing. I mean, it's it's proving your message at the same right. time, right? I mean, it's just right. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's that's my point. And so yeah. I know that I have a thick, have to have a thick skin, and yeah. not, it's not like easy to read that stuff. And so many people have told me not to read it, but like I need to know, <laughs> I need to know what's being said at all times, like because I just that's just my nature as a You're journalist. A journalist. Well, I yeah. want to be able to respond to if I need to, but. I want to start a conversation, and I can't start a conversation without also being willing to listen to other people. Yeah. And so. so. So one last question before we open it up. So start th thinking about questions. And I want to end on a, a positive note, because really the last chapter, the last few pages of the book are just, I had tears in my eyes as I was reading them, because you talk about the interview at God's Burnside <laughs> with these high school girls. Mm -hmm. And as you're talking to them, what can we do to ensure the future is brighter for that generation? And what, what sort of positive energy and ideas did you get out of that interview? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, I have, I have three sons, and I dedicated the book to them. And I fully believe that their lives will be better if we're living in a more equal world. Like, mm -hmm. all of our lives will be. I mean, this is an industry that is changing the way we live every day. It's like controlling what we see and what we read and how we shop and how we communicate. And you know, making the video games that our children are using and, and social media. Yeah. And like, we need people of all backgrounds building these products because people of all backgrounds are using these products. We're talking about, this is not just Silicon Valley's problem or tech's problem. This is everybody's problem. Um, and I think it starts with listening, okay. you know, and understanding what people are going through. And Phil Libin, who's the founder of Evernote, is 
he's like really fascinated by these issues and he made a point to me he's like I feel like your book is this really interesting confluence of people who've been living this every day mm-hmm. and people who had no idea yeah it's like half the people like completely understand and half the people are like oh my god I had no idea mm-hmm. and so like those two groups need to listen to each other yeah um, essentially and in the last chapter of the book is a deep dive on slack which is really Stuart Butterfield has really taken on this issue and, you know, by the way, he's on his like fourth company. And so again, it's like he's sort of learned his lessons along the way. He's made, you know, hiring and promoting women and underrepresented minorities an explicit priority. And he's communicated that throughout the organization. Everybody knows it's in their job descriptions. Every time he tweets about it, they get a spike in inbound interest. Because by the way, if like you say you care about it, people who care about it will come to you. Right. And it's been an, like actually a fabulous recruiting tactic for yeah. them. And so they've, you know, they've done, you know, they've completely diversified all of their recruiting teams. They've, you know, got structured review and feedback systems. They've done a comprehensive pay review. They're constantly asking their employees to source uh, diverse candidates. They have their motto is work hard and go home. You know, so you know, obviously they're not just focusing on bringing, <laughs> right? They're, they're literally the. Uh, head of people was like, we have no ping pong tables. Like, we don't expect <laughs> right. you to sleep here or right. drink here. And they have 43.5% women. And so even he says, he's like, it's not perfect, but it's right. a lot better. And A lot better. If he, if he's, the way he puts it is, like, if women can survive a couple more years, three or five more years, and then have that, like, more seniority, they can go right. on to do other things in the industry. Because the problem is that women leave. Even when they get here, they leave. Women are two times as likely as men to quit jobs in tech. And they're not going to take care of their kids. They're going to jobs in other fields. In fact, they're 807% more likely to leave tech than they are to leave jobs in other fields. Wow. I know. I was like, is that for real? Like, at these numbers, I I was like, finding the data, I was like, this is amazing. Why is there no one talking about this? Right. Not 800%, 807%. Right. That's extra. Right. And so, you know, it's not just that we have a yeah. problem getting them in, it's that we have a problem the keeping retention. them. Yep. Um, and tech changes so fast. And mm-hmm. so I think, especially if you're taking off for a maternity leave, like, the, like your company can completely change. It can reorg, product launch, and so you feel like you've missed so much. Right. And so it's a matter of getting systems in place to you know, support that kind of time off and you know, help that person come back and just make sure that you have a job. Like all of, there's so many things that go into that. Right. But, you know, there are, there, are, there, are, there are a lot of tactical things that companies can do to change. And I don't know how, if you've ever, if any of you know Joelle Emerson, but she's doing some fantastic work. Um, her company is called Paradigm, and they coach companies on how to build diverse teams. And the way she puts it is, if you just focus on raising awareness about bias, you won't necessarily have a lot of impact. But if you give people the tools to combat their own bias, that can have a lot of impact. Mm-hmm. And so we all have biases. It's really hard. It's really hard to change. So, right. you know, but like this is where, you know, companies and people can, you know, sort of actively do things to combat their own biases and try to make sure that these things don't happen. That's great. So let's pause here and maybe open it up for questions. Right here, the woman in the stripes. That was the first hand up I saw. <laughs> Um, I'm wondering about in the newsroom, um, as what what you've experienced um, as like the progression of these issues coming to people's awareness more and more, and then also as a woman championing championing to tell the stories of other women. What forces have you seen um, as a reporter covering this? So, I mean, 
the Bloomberg team has been incredibly supportive, but, you know, sort of before the floodgates opened, I definitely say it was hard to sort of convince people that these stories needed to be told and how. And actually, I think Reid Albergati and the information, like they, they provided sort of a perfect blueprint as to like how we could do this and what the standards are. Since then, I think there's been much greater awareness that these stories are important. So with the Shervin story, for example, I mean, my name was on that story, but there were so many people involved in helping me and tips. And we were really, it was really a sort of a, a team effort, you know, but I think just like the media industry, as we have all learned in the last few months, has not been immune to some of these problems. And I've certainly had my own bad experiences. I don't think that what I've been through compares at all to what generally women in tech have to go through because they are so outnumbered. But I do think that there's the, the, there's been, we've, we've all sort of been shocked into the need to tell these stories and to be aggressive about them and to not to let them drop. But I would be lying if I didn't say there's like a pile of tips on my desk this big and it's so hard to get, it's so hard to get through them because every single one of those stories takes months. And so just simply because of like the lack of resources, though, some of those stories won't get told. And there's like, but, but there's been some interesting sort of collaboration between organizations like, uh, you know, there have been a couple stories I've been working on that people through, like competitors have heard through the grapevine and they've shared, they've sort of shared their information with me almost as sort of a public service because, you know, they believe that these stories need to be told. Over here in the green sweater. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Nuray. I'm a feminist activist from Turkey. Hi. So when you said that you want to make it a movement instead of a moment, I'm like really moved. <laughs> so how can we turn this into a movement? What are your like follow-up ideas and how can we support as women's organizations, as like individuals? Read the book. Give it to your boss. Um, um, I, I, I do think talking about it and, and creating and starting a dialogue and like sometimes that can be difficult to do within your organizations but I've de I literally I've had people tell me they like dropped the book on their boss's desk and were like just just read it just read it and I do think that listening is so important but also like supporting and shining on other people who are doing incredible things like mentorship and advocacy and is really is, is really important and finding your team and I don't know like maybe it's somehow finding a way to start a discussion group in your in your office about it like Cheryl Sandberg started lean in circles like maybe something like that you know can happen in, in smaller groups with I've heard people talking about it in book clubs it doesn't necessarily need to be centered on the book but like this is hopefully going to be a catalyst for a much larger conversation other questions in the back here in the black so this question is more about asking for advice I have a lot of friends and acquaintances that say things like, this isn't really happening, or this isn't real, or why is this such a big deal? Or things like, this is a free market, you can leave tech, it's not a big deal. What have you found to be the best or most effective approach in educating people who might think this way? I always go back to the numbers. Okay. Like, I feel like those people, like, if anything is going to convince them, it's like numbers on paper. And the numbers are just so bad. There's no excuse for them, and there's no way to explain them. Because you can't tell me that 50% of the population is just, like, not good at this. That's just, like, simply not true. We didn't talk about this, but the, one of the things that I felt was, like, the smoking gun in my, in my reporting is that in the 60s, the 
industry was so desperate for new talent that they, this huge software company hired two psychologists to develop a personality test to identify good programmers. And they decided that good programmers like solving puzzles of various sorts. That makes sense. They also decided that good programmers, quote, don't like people. I'm serious. So if you look for people who don't like people, you'll hire far more men than women. That's what the research tells us. And there's no evidence to support this idea that people who don't like people are better at this job than people who do, or that men are better at this job than women. But these personality tests were widely influential. They were used by companies as big as IBM for decades. And it led to the, the creation of this antisocial, mostly white male nerd stereotype that many people think of today when they think of computer programmers. There's simply no reason that that's like the only kind of person who can do this job. But that stereotype has been reinforced in sort of every space, you know, across the industry and in computer labs by parents. It was repeated in popular culture. But it wasn't the reverse. Like the tech industry created the stereotype. It wasn't like movies like Revenge of the Nerds. It was already sort of well entrenched. Um, and then unfortunately, it has been repeated. And that stereotype has shut out so many people. So, you know, simply this, this idea that this is just the way it is because people have self-selected or because, you know, there's men are biologically better, more suited to this. Unfortunately, I think that's a, a belief that is still more widely held than, than we would like to believe. And James Damore is a perfect example of that. But it's the same lazy argument that they made decades ago that unfortunately led to, to women being profiled and pushed out of the industry. Up here in the front. So... I was recently at a, a founder-only invite uh, meeting with a, a bank. It was a dinner. And all around the table were all white men, as you'd imagine. And the, the issue of gender diversity or lack of gender diversity um, and, and other types of diversity came up in the, in the meeting and discussion. And it was, like, it was like everyone was walking on thin ice, even though it was a bunch of white males mm. in the room. And... Some people spoke out a little bit louder than others did about what they're doing and their organizations to try to change that. And other people felt very uncomfortable sort of talking about it. And so how do you think the, the oppressor or the traditional oppressor should be talking, the, the white men, right, should be talking about this inside of these types of meetings to try to break through? It's a great question. I do think that we need to create, and it's hard in, again, like this Twitter happy world, but safe spaces for people to talk about it. Because like we're not going to make any progress if people are too afraid to say what they think. You know, I, I think it starts with being honest. And so when you're honest and, you know, maybe people disagree, that's when you'll, you'll hear it. But like I, I do, I, unfortunately, I think that's a problem. I mean, I've, I'm on the receiving end of like criticism as well with this and it's it's hard but you know i don't know like how do we create those safe i feel like spaces? that's the big problem actually is yeah. that how do the people on the inside who don't want to be oppressive and want to change everybody <laughs> else on this inside of you know the top 98 percent of people who are in you know who are founders that have gotten venture capital or whatever like how do those people break that maybe you know some instead of talking it's listening for a while you know like, everybody, everybody has a story to tell. Yeah, to me, you're looking at me like, yeah. I want to say something. I know, I want like, to say something. <laughs> yeah, no, no I, I agree on the listening point. And then I also go back to, in the book, I think there are great examples. The Slack example, the Affirm example mm -hmm. with Max. I mean, there are, 
there are men in this industry that, um, you know, are doing amazing things mm -hmm. to move the conversation forward, to push us all forward. And, um, you know, maybe it's, it's really looking at those case studies and listening to those and then trying to, you know, bring them into the conversations more. I'm just picturing like you around a table at, at a banker dinner and you're all kind of like, oh no, what should we do? Yeah. Right? I mean, I get it. Well, I think that's real. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I've been getting a lot of really amazing requests to speak and one company wants me to speak to their women's group mm. and buy the book for all the women. And I was mm -hmm. like, no. Everyone. You need to buy the book for the men too. Yeah. Like it's not going to change if just women are having this conversation amongst themselves. Yeah. Um, and Brett Taylor is actually another man that I would single out in the book who, you know, he was CTO of Facebook and he, you know, he was 28 years old starting a family and he was like, if Mark Zuckerberg asked me to do a dinner meeting, Mark was younger than him, if Mark Zuckerberg asked me to do a dinner meeting, I had to say yes, but that was really hard on my family and right. my new family and so when he started his next company, Quip, he, you know, they, they all leave at 5.30, they don't do dinner, you know, they've and they've sort of used that sort of culture as their competitive advantage and you, you see it in the numbers. But I do think there has to be some willingness to have a dialogue about it, and maybe not just a dialogue amongst other white men, right? Like, you have to have all people involved in that conversation. Because what are you really, I mean, like, we can't just trade, trade stories that don't work or trade tips that aren't working, right? Yeah. So maybe more listening and less talking. Uh, right here <laughs> in the front. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, I'm a female founder, and as I've been reading your book, I've just been nodding at everything and how Thank real you. it is. I also run a fintech company, which is in one of the most male-dominated spaces, selling into financial services. So you can imagine what my meetings look like. Um, they look like Jay's so. dinner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been around. I've been at those dinners. I think I, I, what's fascinating is my co-founder is a male, and we always do A/B testing you know, just to see how people treat us differently, and it's unreal, like, you would not believe. I, I've raised money for the company, he doesn't like to, which sucks, I wish he would, it'd be so much easier. Um, he doesn't want to, so I've raised money, and I find I get a lot of sexism in meetings, some of it is overt, some of it is subtle. And you kind of started talking about, you know, people, helping people understand or have the conversation around sexism. When I'm sitting in a meeting and someone says something, many times they're not even aware that what they're saying is not appropriate. For both of you, do you have best practices that you've heard or that you've done yourself for how to kind of address that? Do you bring it up in the meeting? Do you let it go? But people don't even necessarily know they're saying something, but you don't want them to continue to do it yeah. either. I mean, I've, there, I've heard plenty of people say, like, you just call that out. I mean, because no, yeah. I'm sure you've had that many times. Yeah. So what do you say? I've been I've been in those meetings. I mean, it's it is it is hard. I'm not saying it's easy, right? Um, I've been in meetings before where there's um, I'll tell one quick story. There was an investor who, at the end of the meeting, just kind of sat back and he's like, "Babe, listen." And I was like, "What the fuck did you just say to me?" Um, and so yeah, it happens. I think you know it, it's it's a delicate balance, but. I, I feel like, I said this sort of as an off comment, but there are safety in numbers. That is why Me Too has been so powerful, right? It's like everyone has a Me Too story, and everyone is acknowledging that this has really happened, okay? Not just happening, it's happened. And so I think we're at this pivotal moment in time 
where you're not alone. You're not going to be alone. There's there's a little bit more of a support system and a safety net. And the, I'd like to think that the tide is turning and we all have the opportunity to make change, men, women, everyone. So, you know, I, I tend to look at the glass half full. Maybe one more question and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up right over here. Thank you. Hi. So um, as a woman in tech, I'm curious to know within the current construct of just basically how things are, I can drop the book. I can drop your, your book at my manager's desk, but what can I do to, to, to basically forward my career mm -hmm. and that of my colleagues, my female colleagues? Um, what, what are the steps I can take within this construct to, um, you know, with, within a system where there is some, such systemic bias, mm -hmm. subjective bias, to, to move forward in my career instead of giving up? So, you know, one of the lines I've been using is actually from Ellen Powell's book, and she's ta she talks about finding your allies and finding your team. And we all have those people within the organization that we know who like, support us and will be advocates for us, and sometimes you have to be a bit, like, calculating as to how you sort of build those relationships. But I do think, you know, even when you're choosing a job, it's not about just choosing the hottest company on the block, but finding a place that's really going to support you and where you can learn and grow. And I think there's some interesting advice for, for men, which is, um, like, take your hardest job and give it to a woman and help her succeed. Like, it's not going to change unless we start taking chances on people um, and then, you know, then do it again for another hard job. Like, I mean, if you're a man, tell three women your salary. Let's start creating some transparency around, around this. But I do think it, can, it, it has to start with some sort of conversation. And you know, now is a better time than ever to speak up. And whether maybe you don't feel like you can do it alone, but if you can get others together on your team, men and women, who are, who are supportive of this and want to start a conversation about how things can get better, you know, there are sort of grassroots efforts happening within companies that I think can lead to more substantial changes. But like Leah said, I do think it, it requires people working together and sort of summoning that collective courage because, you know, otherwise we're stuck with the status quo, which as we've already talked about, nobody wants. We all want to change. I think, you know, you know even the men, many men, you know, would like to see this change, right? So. Um, we all have to be part of that conversation. All right. Well, on that note, Emily, thank you so much for being here. This is incredible. I think we're all sitting here listening to you thinking, let's make sure this isn't just a moment. Let's make sure this is a movement. And so thank you thank for starting you. the conversation, giving us context and history to look back on and, and have a clearer understanding of how this all happened. Thank you. And by the way, like there is no magic wand, right? And I'm sort of learning as I go and picking up tips as I as I talk to people in crowdsourcing. And I feel like that's how we're going to get to a better place is by starting this dialogue. And yeah, I need your help to make it a, a movement and not just a moment. So let's change the world together. And that does it for this episode of Scrib Chat. Don't forget, you can read Brotopia on Scribd for free with your subscription. If you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting Scribd.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.